Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of Romans, and during this sermon, we look at how to live out our identity as sons and daughters of God. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Who You Are in Christ. After the service today, we're going to have some announcements, some good announcements today. So hang in there uh, after we're done uh, today. Uh, But Romans chapter 6, let's back up to verse 17 to get a little bit more of the context. And it really does have overlap there. So Romans 6, 17, we'll read through 23 and then we'll pray together. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our merciful God, we ask now that you will give us this great grace of visiting us and working in us, of sending us your spirit to move in our lives, O God, that in this part of worship, Lord, you will quicken and awaken, uh, Father, that you will transform that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that perceives, Father, that we will be able to worship. You command us to worship, but we need your help even to be able to do what you have commanded. So we beg, oh God, come to us now. We lay ourselves down, we submit ourselves, and we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. We ask, O God, that you would give us uh, the ability to think deeply and then to be transformed, to see the glory of your truths, that you would show us more of yourself and, Father, bring about greater transformation, bring about greater obedience. We pray that you would give us this greatest of blessings, that you would give us more of yourself. Father, I pray that you help me um, in my job here to just not drop the tray while I bring it to your people. I want to serve you by serving your people and heralding the good news to the lost. And I pray, God, you will move and work. So please bless this time of study for your glory and that your kingdom will come as you work. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. 64 years ago, 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, 
Roger Udarian and Pete Fleming were speared to death by Wadani warriors. Now, I'm hoping that you remember, I've told you portions of their stories in the past. There is more that I want to tell you about today in order to uh, illustrate kind of the text that we're looking at here. But let me give you a little bit of the background to kind of remind you some of the details. These five missionaries had traveled to Ecuador. These five men and their families were absolutely on fire with zeal to bring the message of the gospel the message of eternal life through salvation in Christ to the unreached and uncontacted tribes living in the Amazon jungles. They had learned of a tribe called the Wadani. The Wadani were a tribe separated from modern society and were notoriously violent. Uh, other tribes in the jungle feared this tribe, notoriously murderous, that one of the things their tribe was even known for is that they would put to death, death even the elderly amongst their own tribe. And there's a long narrative of how these missionaries um, discovered, found the location uh, of this and began to make friendly contact by flying a small plane close to the ground, dropping gifts um, to them over a season of time and even uh, speaking to them from the plane, yelling out uh, sentences they had learned from their language, a long process of trying to develop a friendship with them. And they planned how they would eventually in person make contact, learn the language and share the gospel. But when these five finally in person took that step to meet them face to face, the Wadani speared them to death. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, Jim Elliot's widow, has written extensively. Her stuff is just great. And if your family does not have a copy of her book called Through Gates of Splendor, just absolutely encourage you, go buy it today. She tells the whole account of how these things went down. But if, if, if the story only stopped right here, like if God's ordained plan had just gone right there, we would still tell their stories. We would still tell the account of how these five missionaries knew that they were ministering at great risk, were not willing to just play it safe and have a comfortable, convenient Christianity, and they glorified God by their martyrdom. But God goes even farther. And his glory is displayed in even more amazing ways in an incredible work of courage and just gospel fortitude. These men's wives, now widows, after a season of grieving, they decided together to actually go back into the jungle to, to make the, the long trek into the jungle, travel to the very tribe that had murdered their husbands and continued the work that they had begun. And these women actually came to live with the Wadani in 1958, just two years after their husbands were killed. I mean, just for a moment, consider this kind of devotion. I mean, just consider what it means to see your life rightly from the perspective of eternity as an offering to God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
And you know what makes it even more amazing? They had children, even young children. These men left behind families and these mighty women of God traveled into the jungle, lived in huts, raised their children amongst this tribe. Already the account is just a beautiful display of the gospel. Even if there had never been any fruit that come, God has displayed things already. When God saves people, he changes them. He transforms us into new creations by the power of the gospel, by the power of his work in our lives. God transformed these women into courageous, grace-filled ministers of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. These women lived amongst the tribe, eventually learned the language Imagine the work involved just in that. After a long season of learning the language, they began to explain the scriptures. They devoted their lives to the slow and patient work, day in and day out. The work that it took to provide for their households, the work that it took to raise their children, and then teaching the people the scriptures with the obvious emphasis on the gospel day after day after day. And after a season of time, God began to bring about what these five men died for. Members of the tribe began to turn to Christ. They began to believe. And as they began to believe, just a, a few at first, their lives began to be transformed. And this movement spread throughout the tribe. And one of the men... One of the men who came to believe, trusted in Christ, repented of his sins, which meant turning from his murderous ways, which were just part of their culture. One of the men was a young man named Menkai. Menkai was born again. And as part of his repentance, he acknowledged something. He admitted to the fact that when the five missionaries were put to death, he was there and he actually participated. It was his spear that killed two of those missionaries, Ed Saint and Ed McCauley. Now, how would you respond had you learned this news? If you're the widow and now this man says he's turned to Christ and now admits that he murdered your husband. How would you respond? Here's how they did. They responded like Christ on the cross, praying for the father to forgive his very tormentors. Like Matthew 18, Jesus teaching that the forgiveness that we have in Christ compels us, commands us, and inspires us to then forgive others when they wrong us. Minkai actually became a friend and brother in Christ. He actually became lifelong friends with Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint. Lifelong friends. Minkai spent the last, I don't know the exact numbers here, but let me take an estimation. Minkai spent the last around 50 years following Christ and even preaching Christ. Get, get this. He became an elder in his church, 
taught the scriptures amongst his tribe. And, and, and even this part is just even great. Bringing the message of the gospel to other tribes living in the Amazon. The missionary's children described him as a transformed man who was a joy to be around. A number of years back, Minkai, they actually flew him to the United States and the missionary's family, still alive, met with Minkai at Randy Alcorn's church and did, a, uh, did an interview with him. In the interview, Minkai in Wadani spoke and was translated into English. He spoke to the crowds and he said, my heart was dark, but God calls us to come walk his trail. When I was living bad, 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 these women came and showed me God's trail. I said no to the king first, but God called my own name. And then he looked at the crowds and in Wadani called the crowds to come and trust in Christ. Menkai passed away five days ago, 64 years after murdering missionaries but whose wives came and brought him the gospel, which awakened his soul to salvation. 64 years ago, five believers passed through gates of splendor. Sinners saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. And five days ago, Menkai passed through the same gates by the same grace through the same blood of the same savior. This letter opened up with Paul telling us, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel that can do all of that is a glorious gospel. But when we say that, what we mean is the salvation that the gospel tells us about is a glorious salvation. And when we say that, what we mean is the God who works all these things, that is a glorious God. I think that's a pretty powerful illustration for what has been preached in the whole of this chapter. The gospel brings change because through it, God saves in salvation, God justifies, that's the moment of being made right with God, happens in a moment of turning to Christ. God sanctifies, that's the process that happens of a believer being transformed and in the future, he glorifies when our sin is completely removed and we are perfected. In this chapter, we have been learning what God has done to cause, to bring about all of these things by the work of Christ. And even this work that happens right now, so if you are a Christian and it was either five minutes ago or 50 years ago that you turned to Christ, where you are right now until you pass is you are in this season of process that the Bible calls sanctification, a process of growing in obedience, becoming more like Christ. And even how God is doing it right now how we are being transformed, being changed is based on what Christ did and things that were accomplished in our justification. And so in chapter six, 
the emphasis has turned from the justification, the moment of being made right with God to sanctification, this process. And we have been seeing that the truly justified Christian cannot, must not live in ongoing willful sin because, and we saw there were five reasons, five reasons that chapter six tell us about. First, we saw because you have died with Christ and that means you've died to sin. Number two, you are now alive in union with Christ. Number three, you are now under God's grace. Last Sunday, number four, we saw you are no longer slaves of sin. You are slaves of God and therefore slaves of righteousness. And we end today with number five, the justified Christian cannot live in ongoing willful sin because we are called to sanctification and sanctification is the path of our great eternal delight. So let me finish up this chapter like this. I'm going to do it in, in two parts. Um, first, I'm just going to quickly explain the text, walk through the verses that are here, make sure we understand what is said. And then secondly, I want to look back on the whole chapter and give what I believe is the main word of application, the main word of application from the entire chapter. So let's begin with number one, uh, explaining the text. Verses 20 to 23 here really kind of summarize what has come before it. It summarizes the whole chapter. Verse 23 there is really a summarization of the whole gospel. If you understand verse 23, you can explain the entire gospel from just verse 23 itself. So um, looking back through there just a little bit, back up to verse 19 to get a little bit more of the context and let's walk through each of the verses. In verse 19 there, he says, um, you know, he's, he's been speaking about these deep and mysterious things. And then he kind of says, let me, uh, uh, let me speak in a little way that's, you know, a little bit lower here, our, our human weakness. Let me kind of explain it more simply here. He says, just as you, you did in the past, we all presented our members. We presented our bodies, um, every part of our body, our, our tongues, our hands, our minds, our hearts. We presented them as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. And then watch, what was the result? More lawlessness, okay? He's saying there was a trajectory. We lived in sin, and what that resulted in is more sin was coming in our lives. Apart from Christ, you not only, you not only have the punishment of your sins coming, you are on a trajectory that you are heading to increasing ungodliness. But now, okay, there's always this dramatic contrast, conversion, okay? The call of Christ is not to try to better yourself a little bit. It's always a dramatic conversion, death, life. Darkness, light, okay? Now, here's the change. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. So present your bodies, your, your tongue, your hands, your mind, your heart. Present them to righteousness. And what is the result? The result will be more righteousness. Do you see the parallel there? You present your body to sin, the result will be more sin. You present your bodies to righteousness, the result will be more righteousness. Well, what's the word that the Bible uses for increasing righteousness? 
it's the word sanctification, okay? Sanctification is that process of growing into righteousness. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And he's going to set that up. He sets, uses that to set up what he's going to say after that. But make no mistake, the only salvation that exists is salvation that makes us slaves of righteousness. I just cannot emphasize too much how important that statement in verse 17 is. We made a big deal about it already. Look back to it. Thanks be to God that you became obedient from the heart. Listen to me very carefully. The only salvation that exists is the salvation where we become obedient from the heart. I'm telling you guys, it is just all the time that the gospel is misrepresented. And I would suggest that the, the greatest false gospel that exists in our culture is the, is the false gospel that, that says that you can be saved, you can come to have forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life apart from repentance. The idea that so long as you pray this little prayer that I tell you to pray, so long as you have some moment in your childhood at VBS, you're five years old and you just say these words, then you're good. That is one of the greatest false gospels in existence. Some have even systematized a whole theology about it. I heard this just again a couple weeks ago. You've probably heard it too. You've probably heard somebody say, well, it's possible to believe on Jesus as Savior, but not believe on him as Lord and so not obey him. And so in the end, they'll be okay, but it would be better if they believed on his Lord. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That is not the gospel according to Jesus. The only gospel that exists is the gospel that calls us to repentance, that calls us to turn to Christ as Lord. And in fact, taking that ridiculous statement that I just told you, flip over to chapter 10 for a second, Romans 10, and look at verse 9. Here he is explaining how to be saved, okay? So we saw all the, what Jesus did, but how do I get it? Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That part there where he says Jesus as Lord, that is telling us that the only true saving faith is a repentant faith. It is not just a faith that acknowledges the existence of Jesus it is a faith that acknowledges Jesus as Lord. And I almost took the entire Sunday only to preach this one truth right here, okay? Because it's, it's all over the place. I concluded that we have sufficiently studied it. But just think back. Think back constantly to Jesus' preaching. When he say, would say things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and come follow me. You cannot be my disciple unless you renounce your possessions. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Better to enter eternal life missing a hand than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What he is preaching there is the true turning to Christ is a repentant Faith. It's faith and repentance together, two sides of the same coin, this coming to Christ. 
And so here it preached even here. The only salvation that exists is a salvation whereby we are made slaves of righteousness. If your version of Christianity makes you think that you can have eternal life, but you don't have to do anything, you're, there's no requirement to show, it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. We do not obey and be holy in order to be saved. We turn to Christ and we are received even as ungodly, but then we are made slaves of righteousness. And then from there, we live out this obedience. In verse 21, he asked, when you were living in sin, what was your gain? What, what, was there any benefit from doing the things that you're now ashamed that you did? He reminds us what we got from that was death. He's using death in the full definition, what the Bible calls second death, eternal death. And then again, the, the great change. You notice always this, this contrast, verse 22, but now, now there is a benefit. We are on the trajectory of reward and joy. We are deriving our benefit. How does it happen? Through sanctification, the process of being purified. And then notice the language there. And the outcome is eternal life. If you remember um, very early on in this chapter, we, we referenced verse 22 pretty specifically when we had an entire sermon on sanctification is necessary and not optional. There is no road of salvation that is justification, but then living in rebellion, but then you get glorification, eternal life. No, there's justification. And then in whatever time we have on here on this earth, like the thief on the cross, maybe he only had five minutes, but whatever that is, sanctification, and then the outcome, eternal life. It is necessary. And one of the biggest points in this chapter has been that the gospel brings change. The gospel will bring change because God takes us as his project and works. And then verse 23, a great summarization of the gospel. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you've never memorized a verse of the Bible, let me encourage you to make this one or John three sixteen, the first one that you ever do. A great explanation of the gospel. Your sins really do deserve death. The full definition of death, not just the passing of this body, but the full weight of what God shows death is. But there is a free gift that God has made available by the work of his son. If it's free, you cannot earn it, cannot buy it, and cannot work for it. That's not a gift. God will give it in a moment freely at the moment of turning to Christ. It is the gospel of grace. God offers this. Well, there's the passage. There's the verses. There's all of the reasons. Now let me kind of turn a little bit here. And what I want to do is I want to kind of close out the chapter by looking at a main word of application. Looking back at the whole thing, what's the whole chapter preaching to us? 
Well, one of the big things, one of the great applications of the passage is that it is preaching to us our identity in Christ. It's preaching to us, this is who you are in Christ. And then along the way, he explains, and here's the connection between who you are in the heavenly realms, who you are in the eyes of God, and then what we must do in light of it. If you remember throughout chapter six, we kept seeing these indicatives, okay? Realities. If you're in Christ, you have died to sin. You maybe didn't know that until you read that verse, but you have died to Christ. Now here's what it means. And here's what we should do about these things. You're alive with him. This all happened in justification. Now we are to apply it to our lives. And here is one of the great ways we are to apply this. We are to see ourselves in this way. When we think of ourselves, there are a lot of competing identities. There are a lot of wrong ways we can see ourselves. And yet the God in the Bible is constantly showing us, but this is who you are. Make your thinking match who I made you to be. And what we will find is that this has, this really does, this is, this is not, you know, just empty theoretical stuff. This has really dramatic change that it brings to our life. It has really dramatic change to our life when we comprehend and see our identity rightly. So, so think on this with me. Let, let's, let's just spend a little bit of time thinking entirely on this whole concept of our identity and then see what this says about it. When we observe human nature, we see that humans, we're wired up with a need to, to find our identity. We, we have this struggle, we have this longing to find out who we are. You know, what, what group is my group? What tribe is my tribe? One of the aspects that you see of children growing up is the struggle to figure this out. You see the middle school age, especially, you know, one week they're wearing Carhartts and cowboy boots. And then a month later, they're at a different lunch table. They're, they're wrestling to find out who's my tribe, who's, who's my people, who am I? What's happening is the struggle to figure out where they belong. We, we have this wiring to understand and how you view yourself. The identity that you adopt, even if you never thought it out, is just one of the greatest factors that determines how we live and how we think. All of those big questions, where did I come from? Where am I going? What is my purpose? Who is my people? They're all a part of figuring out and making sense of life. And how you answer that question, how you see yourself really will bring a different kind of trajectory. And so watch this. Jesus shows us that in him, in Christ, being a follower of Christ means that our former identities have died. Your old self has died and you have been made a new creation in him. And there is a new identity again and again. We just, we just have to keep making this emphasis. There's a way of looking at religion, moralism that always says, make yourself better. That's what Jesus wants. When over and over Jesus, Jesus is preaching, no, you gotta die. And there's an entirely new self, a new creation, a new birth, a new life that I am giving you. 
The reality of the heavenly realm in the eyes of God is that there are only two identities. Enemy of God and child of God. That's it. And when we come to Christ, all of our former identities, they either have to crumble so because some of our identities were just totally wicked. So they maybe just need to be trashed altogether or they at least need to downgrade. They at least need to fall in matter of priority. You know, sometimes people will talk about themselves as they're getting to know somebody and they may say something like, you know, I'm a Democrat and a Christian, or I'm a Republican and a Christian. Uh, I'm a contractor, a homemaker. Oh, and I'm also a Christian or even I'm white. I'm black and a Christian on and on. One time a Christian did an act of love and someone asked them why they did it. And they responded with, well, I'm a Republican and that's what we do. (laughs) Listen, That is misunderstanding life. That is misunderstanding the cosmos. That is misunderstanding the great banner that flies over your life. When the angels look at you, I can tell you your uh, political platform is not what they see as your great identity. Your great identity is whether or not you have life, whether or not you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, the banner that flies over your life is that Jesus is Lord. And so it's the banner that needs to fly of what we see and how we view ourselves. And and, and listen, Christian, while we're on politics and our entire world is fighting themselves to death over politics, even to the question, who's my people and what tribe is my tribe is also answered by the confession that Jesus is Lord. Galatians 3 says that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we're not changing the context to say things like there is neither black nor white. If you are in Christ, all other aspects of identity have to fall down the list in matters of priority. As the people of God, our unity is not found in that we all manage to vote the same. Within the people of God, we're going to disagree on some of that stuff. Our unity is not that we have similar hobbies, similar skin color, or like the same kind of music, whatever. All of that doesn't matter. It's Christ. You who are in Christ, you have more in common with the North Korean believer in a labor camp that you have never met than you have in common with your blood relative, but who rejects Christ in what our unity is found in Christ. This is our identity. And the Bible is constantly preaching to show what Christ has made us. The old me has died and we are new in Christ. Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Colossians 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so do you see what all these passages are showing? Yes, they're preaching many truths, truths outside of this one right here. But part of their point is that you have a completely new identity. It's amazing just how much time the Bible spends on telling you who you are. First Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Ephesians 2, 
you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus said, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. This is your identity. Your great identity is that you belong to God. Christian, your identity is that you are accepted by God, loved by God, adopted by God. Your God delights, rejoices, and even dances over you. That is in the scriptures that as the bridegroom rejoices, so our God delights over his people bought by the blood of Christ. Listen to me, Christian, very carefully. Your identity is not that you are a loser, a failure, or worthless. Sometimes Christians think it's spiritual to think like that. Because, you know, when we come to learn, like, the weight of our sin, yeah, that feels really awful. When we really see Scripture show just how awful our sin is, sometimes people can mistakenly think that it's a spiritual thing. It's a good thing to think of myself as worthless. But what that's failing to do is to take into account what God has done and then where he has placed us, what the, the dignity he has given to us as his people. When God sets his love on us, when he chooses to show mercy, he does it all the way. Our father in heaven does not regard us, regard us as some wicked fathers on earth who they, they have a, an air of disgust towards their children. Our father's not like that. Your identity, Christian, is that you are a slave and a son. You know, we studied uh, the slave identity last Sunday, and you really do need to see yourself like that. Sometimes people see a command of the Bible, and it's very taxing, and they think, I ain't doing that. You know, who does God think he is, you know, that he can tell me how to, how to think? You got to see yourself as a slave. Luke 17, 10, Jesus said, when you do all the things which you are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done but we have done only that which we ought to have done. You and I, we got to adopt the identity of a slave of God, but we are not just slaves. Jesus said in John 15, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, we are slaves, but not merely slaves in astounding grace. Listen, Christian, he seats us at his table he has adopted us and calls us his sons and daughters. There is no greater dignity that could ever even be imagined than this one. Sons and daughters of the sovereign. My father is the sovereign one. And if I can pause here for just a little bit of an off subject kind of application. At the beginning of this pandemic, you know, we took a Sunday to look at what the Bible has to say on seasons like this. And one of the truths that we saw is that our father uses seasons like this for the testing and purifying of his people. And that we are to, we are to see it as an act of his love. He does these things not out of disgust for us, but out of love for us. But what a season it really has been. Um, we have just seen left and right believers on top of the quarantine 
being hit with real challenging afflictions, heartaches, and and pains. It just seems so obvious as we look at the world and interpret it through the lenses of scripture. We just see what our God is doing. He is using this time as a time of testing. And for so many of you, you've gone through some You've gone through some heartaches that you wanted nothing more than to just go get to be around some people that loved you and maybe just give a great big old hug and weep on somebody's shoulder. And here you've been in quarantine and some of these things have cut you off from that. And it has just intensified the levels of difficulty. But listen to me, it is in these kinds of times that knowing your identity, who you are in Christ, is what you need to keep hanging in there and not fall to the darkness or bitterness. You are sons and daughters of the Father on high. Your every pain has sifted through the fingers of the sovereign one who loves you and they have only come because he intends to work good for you and you will be glad that he did. But but listen, Christian, your identity It's not that you are an object of wrath or even an object of disgust. Sometimes Christians, we struggle with that. We can kind of have this thinking that, yeah, I know I'm saved and technically God's going to let me in. But sometimes we almost have that idea that like God's going to let us in and glare at us like he's not real happy about it. That's not who you are. You are sons and daughters that he rejoices over. That's your identity. Loved, accepted, rejoiced over your identity is Romans 8. If you flip over to verse 31 there, this is jumping ahead to the glorification part where we're getting to. So chapter 6, 7, and the first part of 8 are still sanctification. Chapter 8 gets to the glorification, but, but look a little bit there. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. And on and on he continues. He says, nothing will separate you from his love. No matter what pain, no matter what affliction, no matter what beating you take, it's not gonna separate you from the love of God in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. It's your identity in Christ. And I I just cannot make this clear enough. If you're listening, but you are not attached to Christ, if you have never responded to the gospel, never believed that you must be saved and so turn to Christ in order to be saved, if you have never turned to him like this, this is not your identity. There are other chapters and other sermons about your identity. Because if you refuse Christ, you are an object of wrath. You are on the receiving end of judgment. That's what Ephesians 2 says. And you deserve it. And so did all us Christians. So do all us Christians. But God offers grace. You can become a Christian by receiving that free gift of grace. But for you in Christ, your identity is that you are objects of mercy, love, goodness, and affection. The Bible's constantly preaching. Here's how you are to see to yourself. Who am I? Do you see that a big part of what is happening here in Romans 6 is that God is telling you who you are. 
He's telling you how to think of yourself. Who am I? You have died with Christ. You have died to sin. Who am I? You are raised with Christ and in union with him. Who am I? You are under God's affectionate grace. And by the way, even that statement informs us on our identity. Um, there, was a, there was a big theological debate a couple decades back that happened within Christianity. It's some of our little squabbles that go on within Christianity later get shown to be absurd and things. But there really was a squabble within Christianity, and it went like this. How should we refer to ourselves? Because there was one group that would always say, we're all dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. That's a, that's a direct quote. And then the other group said, no, 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 we're, we're just saints who sometimes sin. So which is it? Which of those two is the way we're supposed to refer to ourselves? I don't think either one of them is very helpful because to rightly understand who we are, you got to take a lot of things together. That whole statement of we're all just dirty, rotten, stinking sinners, that does not take into account the dignity that Christ has given us, that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. But then that statement, we're saints who just sometimes sin. Well, that's not taking sin very seriously. Who are we? Well, you're gonna, we're going to be greatly helped by Romans 7 as well. After looking at all the sin and judgment that's there and then seeing who we are in Christ. Chapter 6 and 7 being joined together is so beautiful because in chapter 6, there's so much. You've died to sin. You're risen with Christ. They're under grace. But then in chapter 7, you're, we're, we're going to love Paul after chapter 7 where he's just like, I'm an idiot. I just keep trying to follow Christ, but I just keep falling on my face. And he's raw and honest about his struggle. Who are we? We are sinners saved by grace, adopted, given a glorious inheritance. We are all menkayis, forgiven, accepted, seated on high, sons and daughters. But we got to see this part as well. We got to see this part of our identity as well. Chapter six mostly preached this. We are a people called to holiness. We are God's possession. And there's a calling in being his people, in being his possession. This is who you are, Christian. You are called to holiness and God expects you to be holiness. Do you remember back in Romans 1? I think it was verse 7. Another word that God uses in scripture to refer to us Christians, we are Saints. The word saint means holy one. And yes, the Catholic Church and others wrongly use that word. Saints are not a special class of people. That's absurd. The Bible clearly uses this word to refer to all Christians. You can look at Romans 1 or Philippians 1 if you want to see some context of that. But saints means holy ones. We are called to holiness. Titus 2.14 Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Who, who am I? We're a people called to be zealous for good deeds. It's been placed in our heart. We need to lean into it. This is who you are, Christian. You're called to holiness 
God has named you a holy one and you and I are called to sanctification. The imperative is then for us to go do it. Let's go do it. Let's go be holy. Here are the the two imperatives that I leave you with. Number one, Christian, adopt this identity. We got to let this tea steep until it saturates our hearts. We got to analyze and think through our lives. We've got to see what are the identities that are competing for first place. And we got to lower them. There are some identities that just need to crumble and be trashed. And we have got to see ourselves first and foremost as sons and daughters of the people of God called to be holy. And then imperative number two, live it out. Live it out. Verse 19 gave us one of the very few commands of this passage. Most of this passage was just explaining, here's what Christ did and who you are. Very few commands. But verse 19 has one of them. And it says, present your members as slaves to righteousness. Consciously. Let's think through our lives. Let's think through moment by moment. How how do I submit every part of myself to be subservient to the glory of God? How do I make my work glorify God? How do I make my family time glorify God? How do I make my hands, my head, my tongue? um, How do I make my sexual organs glorify God? How do we submit every single part of who we are to the glory of God, even taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ? And, And I say to you, who have not turned to Christ to be saved. Listen, you've seen the the scripture show you very clearly. The wages of your sin, the paycheck of your sin really is death. But there is a free gift that God is making available to you. Christ died to save sinners. If you will acknowledge your need, turn to Christ, trust in him, confess him as Lord, you will be saved. Please bow with me. We'll pray. And then we'll have a couple announcements here in just a moment. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, I pray that we will do this text. Father, we've seen the glories of what you've made us to be. We've seen the glories of how you've saved us and the new identity you have given us. I I pray God help us to see ourselves like this. It's, It's oftentimes a long process but Father, help us to grow in this. Lord, that we'll see our, our, see our identity and then we'll live it. Cause us to be a people who live holiness. Father, I, I pray for any of those listening that has never turned to Christ. God, I pray that before the day is done, they will respond to the gospel and enter your kingdom. Help us, God, continue to bless our church and we pray these things through Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message titled, Who You Are in Christ. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.